Have you seen that there is... It's a lot of YouTube adverts going around at the moment for this film. It's called something like Click Clack. It's some sort of youth of today style gangster British thing. Okay. uh, With Jeremy Corbyn credited in the trailer. What? For what? (laughs) (laughs) He does like a cameo or something. Oh, okay. Well, good for him. A credited cameo. It's so weird. It looks like somewhere between like adulthood, uh, you know, Mm. that sort of thing. And just... Uh, the Harry Hill movie uh, or yeah. something like just in terms of obnoxious cameos I don't yeah. know what to make of it wow. is it an exciting new direction for youth oriented British cinema or a terrible sign of the decline of our civilization <laughs> I don't know but it's not French I can tell you that it's not French and they wouldn't put up with anything like that although I highly imagine I mean my god if um, Macron is not showing up in sex comedies <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised we haven't seen more of Sarkozy. Well, God, there's got to be a bit of Sarkozy's butt in some of these movies. <laughs> no, I think he would, he would want to play gang... He'd want to do gangster films oh, as well. Yeah. That's my deep insight into French politics in the past 20 years. Critic, this is a film mayhem podcast. Nope. <laughs> no, it's not. I don't do it every time. At least I catch <laughs> myself this time. This is a screen mayhem podcast. Yes. My name is Jen Bloodell, and with me as always with me as always is my film critic, Paul Salt. Say hi, Paul Salt. Sacred blue. Sacred blue indeed to you and yours. Thank um, God we do have two French films to talk about, which we will be doing in roughly 55 minutes. I thought you were going to say in French. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've prepared for this. Yeah. Ah oui. Um, <laughs> Paul, <gasps> tell us about the films. Well, first a disclaimer. I missed a couple of big August movies because I caught COVID just before the finish line. You're so late to the game, Paul. It's unfashionable now. I know. I went three and a half years without catching COVID. Mm. That's that's that makes me the greatest hero in England. Unless you're because you live in London, unless oh, you're yeah. one of those types that like caught it in February 2020 and just didn't even realize it was COVID. Because my immune system is just that badass. It could have been. Yeah, it could well have been. Mm. So I didn't get to see the Blackening or Scrapper, both of which look very interesting. I shall be including those in the Septemberish uh, episode. Oh mm-hmm. God, I've got all magazine things are issues now. This is the <laughs> August corrupted. issue. I know. It'll be really obnoxious when I pause for a 12 minute Calvin Klein advert that I'll describe <laughs> to you in full detail. It's just Please. a butt. <laughs> it was right fit. Um, also, some of the big movies of this month I actually reviewed last month at Sundance London. So check out our written reviews for Talk to Me, Passages, and Past Lives, all of which are great. Um, that's on, that's on that, screenmayhem.com. That's screen. Screen. That's on, Mayhem.com. So check it out. Yeah. Go on there. Uh, check him out. Paul that, writes things too. He can write. I can write sometimes when we I taught him absolutely have to. There's going to be a Fright Fest thing going on as well. So oh, cool. enjoy that. Spooky movies. Aside from that, I think it's fair to say that August has been a fairly lean month. In the mm. wake of Barbenheimer, I think mm-hmm. a lot of studios sort of left this to be a modest, a modest end to mm. the summer movie season. More of which later. 
But let's let's start by getting the superhero movies out of the way because of course we've had a few. And the frustrating Can I guess, huh? Can I guess which one yeah. came out? No, you do two. no you do your thing. I feel like you've got fun things to say. You say that instead. <laughs> no, you do it, guess. Is it the one we saw lots of trailers for? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the frustrating current state of the genre that I do earnestly hope is on the decline, not necessarily into dis- extinction, perhaps, because, you know, whenever somebody says, oh, superhero movies are failing at the box office, somebody says, yeah, but they'll never die. And it's like, I don't need them to die. I just want them to be out of complete dominance, yeah. which is what they've enjoyed for the last 10 years. You know, 15 years, really. So I just, I, I want diminished. <laughs> I don't need extinct. It's fine. But yeah, I do I do have one to slate and one to commend. So let's start with The Blue Beetle. Mm-hmm. Yes, That's watch. the one. That's the yeah. one we've seen so many trailers for. <laughs> we've seen so many trailers. And can you guess if this is the one I'm going to commend or slate? I'm going to guess you're going to slate this one. Let's find out. Because let's this is the out. latest and penultimate, I think, entry into the long-fated DCEU, which began with Man of Steel and then got into trouble with its second movie and has been <laughs> trying to find its feet ever since. It's now been 15 movies and wow. it still hasn't quite figured itself out. And the next one's the last one. <laughs> Yay. Kill it already. Put it down. What? I know, right? Oh my god, this very nearly does. Although DC head James Gunn has implied that maybe this character will continue on into the rebooted DCU. But he wants to stress this is not the first film of the new continuity, basically because he wants his Superman reboot to be the first one. And my god, is it exhausting to think that we're starting over again with Man of Steel version 2.0 next year as if it was 2013 again? I know... Would you, if you could be teleported back to 2013, would you do the decade again? Yeah, it was a good decade, actually, for me. I'd probably, yeah. I'd cut one person out of my life immediately, and then I think I'd have a pretty good run of things. But cinematically, (laughs) I would do it completely different. I would not watch a Hollywood movie again, I don't think. (laughs) Okay. I would just go and try and finally catch up on the cinema of the Southern Hemisphere. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. For once. (laughs) Uh, anyway, it's far too easy to talk about these things in terms of the franchise or the movement and not the actual movie that's in front of you, especially when they are as generic as this one. But let's engage a bit. So, And then I'll complain about superhero movies some more. <laughs> so we meet Jaime Reyes, mm. uh, who is played by... Uh-oh, I practiced his name, but it was about <laughs> four hours ago. Uh, would you like to have a go? If you Google uh, Blue go Beetle, you'll, it's the top um, top result. Uh, you might do better because you've got some Spanish up in there. Uh, I believe it's oh. Zolo Maridueña. It's it'll definitely be Maridueña. Maridueña. But I don't know how the X is pronounced. Cause I think I, pr- I looked it's it up. Not and it was Zolo Castilian Spanish. It could be uh, an S. It could be a. I think it's Z. Sh. When I looked it up, it or it could it, be a Z. I don't know. It pr- it spelled it out for me as Zolo Marid- Maridueña. Uh, Married, excuse yeah. me. Excuse our ignorance. Excuse this. Paul. Fucking excuse Paul. my constant oh, yeah. poor attempts. Oh gosh. You know what? I was like, oh great, they've trans they've written it with the phonetic spelling. And I remembered I can't read that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nuts. How useful that would be, if yeah. only. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, Jaime has just graduated with a law degree. He's all about justice, who returns to his fictional Texas hometown of Palmyra City. Uh, he has big dreams, but soon finds himself working as a cleaner for the villainous business owner Victoria Cord, played by Susan Sarandon. 
Well, you can pronounce that name, okay, can't you? Like, you know, <laughs> I'm a terrible imperialist. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we really should uh, know how to pronounce. We really shouldn't be having any kind of platform. But no. his fortunes shift when he comes into possession of a mysterious amulet that gives him incredible powers that allow him to fight against the aforementioned villain. I think the big problem here is originality, which is what you could kind of guess from the trailer, but mm. this is stunningly generic fare. You can literally point to individual scenes and say, that's Iron Man, that's Shazam, that's Venom, that's Green mm. Lantern, that's Shang-Chi, you know, that's Spider-Man, that's Iron Man again. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, Black <laughs> Adam, unfortunately enough, and that's Miss Marvel. You know, it's just... Yeah. And it's even older than all of these things. It has the same premise as Star Kid. A 1997 superhero film that I saw as a nine-year-old boy, where a young boy, played by Timmy from Jurassic Park, yeah. discovers an alien cyber suit that talks to him and they have an adventure. It's that. It's that movie. Okay. Only 25 years later. 26 years later. God, I'm old. And it's, <laughs> You're ancient, it's, Paul. I'm so ancient. I'm as old as an ancient uh, amulet that gives people superpowers. <laughs> and it's very generic, this film. And I think that is a fatal flaw now, because... Having borrowed from seemingly every superhero film ever made, it then fails to do anything original with that material. The premise is bland, just, you know, a boy fights against corporate overlords. Mm -hmm. The messaging is unoriginal, you know, oh, your love for your family makes you (laughs) weak. Oh, I wonder where this is going. Yeah. Do you think maybe it actually makes him strong, it turns out? Oh, oh, damn, I was just going to guess that, Paul. Yeah. Well, maybe not. Maybe this time it'll actually be right. And it's like, you know what? Yeah. My family has been holding me back. Yeah. And he's become a loner badass like you, bad guy. I'll definitely be happier and stronger then. (laughs) He actually does. It's Ayn Rand's Blue Beetle. (laughs) Uh, If Zack Snyder directed it, then that might have happened. But the performances are functional. They're fine. The humor isn't particularly funny. And the action is thoroughly uninspiring, like most of the other blockbusters that came out this month. He has a suit that can manifest literally anything he can imagine. Wow. And shows less imagination than even the Ryan Reynolds Green Lantern movie that has the same premise. And if I remember correctly, does at least involve a bit where he summons a big green train to run the bad guy over. Blue Beetle just does swords and different blasters. Oh. Wow. anything. Well, not even like a, like a rocket launcher? maybe i don't know there's also a uh, a few gadgets left over from the previous iteration of the blue beetle who was just a guy with gadgets like batman (laughs) so you know you got batman in here as well and it's just wow okay yeah I just, I see nothing that makes this any better than, Shaz- better than Shazam or Quantumania. And I don't understand why critics are mm. calling it refreshing. Because, you know, maybe it's because it's an origin story and we haven't really had an origin story for a long mm. time. But I don't see why returning to the boilerplate superheroes plots of the noughties makes this any less underwhelming. Mm. There might be some intrigue derived from the fact that this is, I believe, our first like Mexican Hollywood mm-hmm. superhero. Because obviously the Mexican, yeah. you know, Mexico has its own superhero. San- has Santo! The excellent wrestler from the seven, 60s oh, and 70s. Nice. Um, the sort of master luchador, do you call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, star wrestler who was in lots of Fun. James Bond knockoff movies back uh, in the day. Okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if those quite resonate with kids the way that they used to. Mm, I hope they do. I hope Santo does. Yeah. But nevertheless, this fun. is... He was good fun. Uh, but yes, the Mexican superhero and the director, uh, Angel Manuel Soto, uh, did say that he wanted to do something authentic with the family in particular. Mm. But I just, I can't see evidence of that. And in fact, it just plays into something that I've started to notice about American backed portrayals of non-white families, which we'll get into later when I talk about another mm. one of our movies. But there's a trend emerging here in terms of how 
non-white families tend to be presented. Um, and suffice to say, it does not lend this film a unique perspective or voice. Mm. There's a class issue. And it's nice mm-hmm. to see that directly tied to race and to see Jaime experience issues like casual racism and a hostile paramilitary force, even if they do wimp out and have it be a private military than just the regular police. Um, and it's nice that they have this Latin American revolutionary angle with the grandmother character who is, you know, a former revolutionary in yeah. real world sort of politics terms who, you know, still knows how to kick ass. That's kind cool. of fun. That's fun. You yeah. know, and it's nice to have her as like a, a you know, a good character. But the story is not revolutionary. You know, you have to look at Across the Spider-Verse for something that actually feels a bit bold, countercultural, and young. Yeah. Now, something that was actually observed to me that I hadn't spotted before is that Across the Spider-Verse is about how the adults are wrong, you know your fate and your future better than anyone else, whereas The Flash was about, hey, you shouldn't dream of making your life or the world better, um, and that's going to be explained to you by this billionaire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, Batman. <laughs> I wonder why this didn't resonate with kids. Yeah. Um, The Habs Blue Beetle represents the mediocrity that Marvel achieved 15 years ago and has been, you know, fine tuning ever since. And Mm. this kind of movie would have helped them build their brand around the time of Aquaman and the first (laughs) Shazam in like 2018. But I I like to believe we're just past that now and that people are bored enough with superheroes that you actually have to be a bit exceptional if you want to justify taking up the room that you take in the Hollywood budget sheets. Yeah. So... I'm giving it one star. It's it's wow. a poster boy for lack of effort in Hollywood movies. Wow. And I don't know if superheroes really are just starting to falter this and last year. You know, there have been some high profile flops. Mm. And I know COVID is still a factor, but I don't know. You compare box office numbers between now and 2019 and it's not radically different. No. But it does seem like there have been some dwindling numbers in there that can't just be put down to COVID, especially when you look at things like No Way Home, which did extremely well. Mm. Um and but the whole Barbenheimer phenomenon. So maybe we are actually moving moving on. But I mean if it could just come down to fewer if the <laughs> big studios could put one superhero movie out maybe even just two a year. Yeah. If we weren't doing a superhero movie almost every episode every episode this year. <laughs> it does feel year. like there's one every episode. Yeah. I swear there has been. I really yeah. Some don't of them think are good, though, been to one. be fair. We'll give them, yes, there was a the couple problem. of good ones in there. Yes, yeah, but there, there, was the, there was the Spidey, Spider-Mans. They were good. Yeah, the, 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 we've had Across the Spider-Verse and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Oh, yes, I think there was that. Are... I didn't see that one. You know what's so weird is I saw that movie and I f- remember really liking it, but I remember very little about it now. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. I'm just bored and i know i'm just as a film journalist i'm just bored about talking about the same thing over and over Mm. but i genuinely think i might just stop engaging with superhero films now and you know i'll mention it in like a rundown but i'm not going to get this far into them unless they're bad in a different way or good (laughs) okay yeah fair enough i think that's fine yeah we'll just be like the the marvel at this point (laughs) as you'd expect yeah and just move on but yes, unfortunately, I do then have to immediately concede a slight win to the superhero genre because we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and <laughs> <Mutant> Mayhem. Okay. <laughs> nice to hear. Yeah. Well, the co-director of the very charming The Mitchells versus The Machines. Did uh, you see? Yes, I loved it. Yeah. 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 So you've got one of the directors of that, along with producers Seth Rogen and his frequent collaborator Evan Goldberg, bring us the latest vision of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a property that has, I think it's fair to say, struggled cinematically since Mm. its very first film, which has become a bit of a cult favourite and has a bit of a devoted following, of which I'm not really a part, I have to say. I didn't see it as a kid. Mm. Um, 
I was born a little bit too late to be a big Turtles fan, I think. I think it was for the generation, the half generation before. As kids born yeah. in the early 80s got really into Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I had Power Rangers. Yeah. True. <laughs> so. <laughs> Our flips came from Japan. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Or wherever. Absolutely. Or wherever. <laughs> and then Pokemon. It all just, yeah. Japan was very much uh, poised to dominate our entire identities. Um, the only turtle media I remember enjoying as a kid were the arcade games. They were fun. Yeah. Nevertheless, in this version, we meet the four titular mutant turtles uh, and their adoptive father, Splinter, uh, cool. voiced by Jackie, Jackie Chan. And they've all been made somewhat human by the mutagenic ooze that's been dumped into the New York sewers after New York. a lab. New York sewers <laughs> after a lab raid. It's been a moider. A moider. And. Uh, all the mutants dwell underground whilst dreaming of a normal life on the surface. Mm. But Splinter is terribly fearful of the surface and the people there after a, a horrific encounter with some humans. And mm. so he forces them to live underground. Uh, but after a chance encounter with a high school news reporter, April O'Neil, uh, who is keen to redeem herself after throwing up on the high school news channel, uh, they work together in order to take on the local mythic crime figure, the Superfly. Ooh. 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 It, it it feels silly to suggest that this film has borrowed into the Spider-Verse's idea to have a uni- unique art style. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's an idea they had. But the film has a very Spider-Verse-esque alternative art style. It's mm. very punky. It feels like kind of cut out kind of things. I think, or like I, yeah, I think I've seen Kids drawings and like the mm. margins of school books. It's very frenetic and uh, it becomes very abstract during the action sequences, which are actually exciting and fun. And I think that's the first time I've ever said that about a Ninja Turtles property is that I look forward to the action when it's happening because it looks cool. good and it's kind of it propels you through that with a really dynamic kind of kinetic energy uh thematically it's not much more sophisticated in its intentions than blue beetle you know it's all about family and self-acceptance and accepting others but it finds ways to make it compelling and interesting the turtles have a very relatable wish and need to be a part of the society they venerate but are terrified will violently reject them with Mm. good reason yeah you know there's no it, it, it feels very believable that society wouldn't be on super board thrilled to butch. see yeah. the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> turtles being the key part of that. Turtles, yeah. Well, Teenage Mutant is an ideal. Teenage yeah. isn't even ideal, really, in terms of societal acceptance. Ninja we're fine with, though. Ninja, I'm okay with. Yeah, I'm also I'm okay with. That's the most palatable ninjas. part of that whole sentence. <laughs> it goes, um, I think it actually goes Ninja, Turtle, <laughs> Teenage. No, Mutant above Teenage. Yeah. I at think least I... mutation will have given them humility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the British version, you'd have had a hero in there. That oh, yeah, helped. of course. We called them the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Instead of ninjas. Didn't understand the, ninjas... the concept of ninjas in the 80s. No, I think it was just too violent, Jen. Too it's too violent. nasty and confrontational, and I don't want mm. it around my kids. Yeah. And I want it to be Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. Ninja does mean death to all, especially you, mum, in Japanese. So, <laughs> what it that? does literally mean? Because the ninja, of course, is a very misunderstood and largely canonized figure by sort of kabuki traditions. I'll whereas... look it up, Paul. You look it up. You, you risk your internet. Your... You risk life and limb by looking up what the word ninja literally means. Ah, uh, then 
when the turtles actually do finally meet up with the Superfly and his gang of other mutants, including quite a lot of uh, mutants from the comic books, including Bebop and Rocksteady, you feel that connection that they have to them and that sort of ease of fitting in with characters who are like them. And it's compelling. Like, you do feel that and you think, yay, this is great. Mm-hmm. So then when that relationship turns and you find out about the dark side of this found family, then it becomes very dis- distressing, you know, when you get an yeah. insight into this idea that, you know, protective found family relationships can turn toxic, and that can be particularly, you know, damaging to marginalized groups who don't have elsewhere to go. Mm. That is interesting. That's a profound message. Yeah. And it's one that's always been quite inherent to the Teenage Mutant Ugh, to them, to the TMNT, because <laughs> the Foot Clan used to fulfill that function in the old media as well. But it's very explicit mm. here, and I think that's quite good. What's it mean? Cool. It means one who is invisible. That makes sense. According to Wikipedia, the first line on Wikipedia. And, you um, know, when you want to be invisible, the best thing to do is not to have a uniform. Yeah, no, <laughs> or just be a mutant turtle. Like dudes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hard to be invisible when you're a mutant turtle. That is true. It's, it's, it, it draws the eye. Uh, the voice acting is very good, with relative unknowns playing the four leads who inject the characters with lots of life and pathos and s- succeed in differentiating between them, which I sometimes struggle with. Uh, in particular, mm. the relationship between Leonardo and Raphael is particularly very natural, and that's your quintessential sort of leader and foil kind of relationship. Cool. Your, you know, Luke Skywalker and uh, Han Solo style, yeah. you know, too cool for your noble mission style mm. thing, which is very good. Um... Io Edamary is um, excellent as April O'Neil in a rendition that actually feels definitive. I think this is the most interesting April O'Neil's ever been. She's fun. She recalls Tina Fey's character in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, not just because she's a reporter, but because of the sort of frenetic, charming energy that she cool. brings to it. And in supporting cast, I mean, you've got Maya Rudolph, Rose Byrne, Natasha Dimitriou, Giancarlo Esposito, Jackie Chan, Paul Rudd, Ice Cube as the villain. They're all excellent and make this world feel robust and very human. And it's funny. It's crucially very funny. It's got good banter between the characters and some really amusing visual gags. You know, with Seth Rogen involved, you might think, oh God, is this going to lean too heavily on the humor and kind of undercut the whole thing? But it finds a good balance and doesn't abandon its stakes. Um, oh, and I'm sure it goes without saying, but Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross do a very good score. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, still, yeah. I, you know, I've been recently listening to some early Nine Inch Nails stuff, and it's very weird that Trent Reznor's music is now considered family appropriate after Soul <laughs> and now this. It's just, obviously his lyrics aren't about, but just that industrial rock sound that he helped popularize, you know? Yeah. We're a long way from the pretty hate machine. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Again, I think Spider-Verse kind of paved the way for that kind of aesthetic because okay. that mm. had that similar sound. Mm. Uh, but yes, if Blue Beetle is the face of mediocrity that I'm no longer willing to tolerate, then Mutant Mayhem is kind of what, for me, represents the new minimum effort that I require to enjoy a superhero movie. Which is to say, it has to, su- to some extent, reinvent the genre now in mm. order to get what this is going to get from me, which is three stars. Okay. You know. <laughs> I'm going to hold back greater praise for bigger, better movies. But yeah, if you want to get three stars out of this thing now, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to reinvent the medium to some extent. (laughs) That's what I expect now. It doesn't get close to across the the Spider-Verse levels of transcendent cinema experience, but it's Mm. just different enough, you know, to make it feel fresh. And my God, is that hard to do right now? Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I'd watch it. Yeah, give it a go. I'd watch it. It's good fun. Fun. We had fun. Nice. Speaking movie. Of movie. Speaking of making stuff feel fresh. Mm-hmm. The Meg 2. The Trench. <laughs> nice. 
Nice. This is the follow-up to the 2018 film The Meg, the and Meg. I, I do believe it is an improvement. It's directed by Ben Wheatley, who is typically familiar to audiences for smaller genre fare, mm-hmm. little horror films and crime films and such. He made Free Fire and High, High Rise, which are both quite ambitious movies, but they are very contained and low budget. So mm. I think his, like his next big budget film was probably the Rebecca remake, which nobody watched because it was during the lockdown and it wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> So this is his first sort of big wide release film and it's reasonable to hope that he brings his particular brand of self-knowing dark humour and excess to proceedings. And I think he does in some places, but it's it's hard to overcome the blandness of the central conceit of these movies. Yeah. There you know, is a big adds, shark. There's a big shark and this is And going it's very to be, big. Big shark isn't a problem. The problem is it's a PG-13 Chinese market friendly uh, mm-hmm. and therefore Chinese censor friendly big budget monster movie. Oh, and, that's no, the only, in half. and that's the only reason it's big budget is because it's Chinese censor friendly because mm. that's where the money is coming from and you can't get an American studio to pay for anything that's not a superhero movie <laughs> until now but we'll see um, yeah people getting chopped in half you'll get like kind of you'll get the implication that people have been yeah. chopped in half even, um, I don't like gore and even I want to see a giant yeah. shark chop someone in half <laughs> well, what's the point you know in yeah, the exactly. last movie the, I mean the last movie the, the joke was everybody used the word toothless to describe it yeah. You know, and but it was fair. It was absolutely toothless. This one is is two fish. Okay. <laughs> two fish. There's two fish. Two fish. Um there's one little tooth. Some baby teeth coming through. Little teeth. But he yeah, he doesn't place it. So the concept is that Jason Jason Statham is you know, I have no idea what his actual role is, but they bring He's him Jason in. Statham. They bring him into Jason Statham uh, around sharks mm-hmm. uh, because he can fight massive sharks really well. Uh, there's a place called the Trench at the bottom of the sea that it's walled off from the rest of the ocean by a layer of either hot or cold water, I can't remember which, Something. called called the Firmacline, that mm. none of these terrifying animals on either side can cross except when they need to. <laughs> uh, so three megs, some lizards and a squid escape and attack a beach. So, you know, stay from yeah. the co, go find him. And I've seen critics complain that everything before that happens, which is roughly halfway through the film, you know, takes itself too seriously for too much mm. of the runtime, and then it finally lightens up for the finale. But that was not my experience. I mean, <laughs> it starts with Jason Statham literally fighting environmental disaster as he beats up some random thugs who are dumping toxic waste before <laughs> being scooped up in one of those planes they use to extinguish wildfires. They just okay. scoop Statham out of the ocean and he holds his breath until they drop him back at the Meg Research Base. Then there's a sojourn to the trench where they play fast and loose with physics and have a mech suit fight against a giant squid before reaching the underwater base where even more craziness happens. And that's that's all before the lengthy final act sort of mayhem. So I don't know, even though the film has the same 12 certificate that its predecessor has, it is distinctly grislier with some really genuinely affecting moments of sort of brutal surprise deaths as the mech just sort of appears and snatches people and, you know, eats them to death. And it, you know, it gets away with a fair amount with its certificate. Um, it's, crucially, it's not a 12A. It's a hard 12. Mm. Parental consent will not get you into this if you're under 12. Okay. Um, you know, and Wheatley finds some moments to get across the horror at the core of the Meg concept, which is this kind of Lovecraftian, oh God, this living thing that hates people is huge. <laughs> yeah. And could swallow you and your family in one bite. You know, and there's a nice inside the shark shot that sees people like drift into the mouth. <laughs> like, and, and the jaws don't close quickly enough to eat you. So it's not like yeah. jaws. He's not going to, you know, chomp you to death. You're going to yeah. drift into his mouth and then, I don't know, drown, get digested. Yeah. Who's to say? Ooh. <laughs> 
not yeah. to be covered in this PG thirty in this PG film. Yeah. Wow. Okay. But, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But Statham is doing his usual thing, and Wheatley does find some moments to make the most of his somewhat singular screen presence. I think. Yeah. He's the Stath. Yeah, the Stath, but nothing rivals Crank. You know, Crank <laughs> One and Two, which no. is still still the films that best utilize the unique absurdity of the man and the sort of gameness of the man. I don't know if Statham is game in the same way anymore. I hope he is. I think I have spy, no idea. My spy implies he is. Yeah, maybe. Or spy, whatever it was called, the spy film he did. I think he's still mm. got a sense of humor about himself. Yeah. Uh, supporting characters are much more entertaining and endearing this time, in spite of having the same screenwriters. I don't know if Wheatley let them just improvise more, but we've got returning actors Wu Jing, Cliff Curtis, and Paige Kennedy, who were impossible to remember from the first movie, but here have good chemistry and actual things. In particular, in particular Cliff Curtis and Paige Kennedy are a double act for most of the movie, and they're just great. They're really mm. funny and they work well together and they're quite charmingly self-effacing and I, I really like it. Like, yeah, I, I nice. think this is a significant improvement over its predecessor and it's actually fun, which is all Good. I ever needed this to be. Good. So it's three sharks for me. It's just three sharks, three megs, three sharks, three megs. And Lovely. yeah, I recommend it. And if you can see it in 4DX, I recommend it that way. <laughs> I have heard contrasting things from Bex. Yeah, wear a good bra. <laughs> And, yeah, I think uh, where a strong bra is uh, necessary for the and, amount. It's like a part. I've never been to 4DX, but I have the impression <laughs> it's like a roller coaster. <laughs> Wear a good bra and maybe some thick underwear because it does have a vibrating <laughs> element in the seat of the chair that may prove uh, challenging. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> good mm. fun. Yeah. But I tell you, cool. no, amount of, no, no choice of underwear is going to improve the situation of Gran Turismo. Uh, another film that we saw a lot of trailers for yeah we did yeah really we're pushing that one they really were this is an adaptation of the story of Jan Mardenborough from Vroom a young man who after gaining a high score in the PlayStation racing simulator for which the film is named gained entry to a contest to select a player to become a real life racing driver for Nissan a project spearheaded by the a marketing executive played by Orlando Bloom and much to the chagrin of David Harbour's Harbour's surly former racer turned mechanic who must tutor the boys in the ways of the track (laughs) <laughs> will Yan's skill allow him to win over against the snobby rich kids who he races against yeah 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 he will pretty much he without wins. setback in fact oh wow not at all he doesn't crash a car once or oh like, he does crash a car he once. does yeah of course yes. he does because in real life he crashed a car and a guy died a spectator got hit oh shit um <laughs> do they have do they have a spectator die in the film do they yes oh wow okay good and they for them. move it to a place where it's more convenient for the plot in what is a uh-huh. The height of sensitivity. Go on. <laughs> so, all right, let's start with some good stuff first. Let's, Jan, or Jan, I should think, is uh, played by Archie Medikwe. Mm-hmm. Medikwe, perhaps. And he and Harbour are the best things about the film. There is mm-hmm. a very authentic dynamic there and a protective and yet antagonistic kind of parental relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that came across in the him. trailer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. It, it, he's very tough on him, but he's very protective as well because ultimately he doesn't want... To People, have a death. Kids to die. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't want the <laughs> kids to die. Teenage boys to die. Yeah. And, you know, driving an F1 car is extremely dangerous, demonstrably. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Mm-hmm. That Watching an F1 of... car is extremely dangerous. So it seems, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. it gets that across because 
And that's really good, and that's the sort of heart of the movie, but otherwise the film is quite messy and underwhelming. It introduces his parents, played by Jamon Hounzu, who's always great, and mm-hmm. Jerry Halliwell, who I did not notice. Wow, I didn't... She yeah. wasn't in the trailer, was she? Blanking I don't out. think so, but I watched that entire movie without realising that was Jerry Halliwell, which is not a good thing. Um, and then, it, But the reason it was so easy to ignore who plays her is because it abandons her for most of the movie. Mm. Both of them. Because it's yeah. more interested in David Harbour and yeah. makes him the sort adoptive of father. father. Figure. <laughs> yeah, basically. So it does this frustrating, arbitrary romance subplot that doesn't really go anywhere or improve anything. It moves around the real events, including a real life death, in order to shape a much more generic racing narrative mm. with very predictable highs and lows. So they use the death to just be like, this is his lowest moment. You know, this uh, is when he lost faith in the racing and he had to overcome that but... guy's real life death in order to really <laughs> win this final race. Who's and the like, real victim here? Who's the real victim? My God, like it's very <laughs> insensitive. So wow. stylistically, there are little bits of, because this is Neil Blomkamp directing. Okay. This is District 9 and Elysium oh, okay. and uh, Chappie. I like District 9. Everybody liked District others. Nine. Yeah, and we then all he did. Prawns. To... <laughs> 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 so you get little bits and pieces of his sort of signature hyper stylization, but none mm. of his real production design, which was very distinctive. But it's 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 really disappointing to see the District Nine director produce something so polished and ubiquitous. Like mm. this is Marvel movie aesthetics. You know, it's just it's not special. But the racing sequences do occasionally manage to get across the visceral excitement of motor racing. Cool. With some mounted cameras and some inventive use of overlaid graphics to help you sort of get inside the head of Martin Bro as he sort of compares his gaming experience to the real life experience and vice versa, you know. So I don't this was never gonna be a particularly provocative or insightful or lancing film because <laughs> it's made in full cooperation with PlayStation and Nissan ah. and the actual guy was his own stunt driver in the movie. So ah. it's all very safe and sympathetic to everyone involved except that guy who died. Um <laughs> in fact actually the only other character who gets a bit of an antagonistic kind of portrayal beyond the spoiled rich kids that sort of man the other cars mm. is Orlando Bloom's Danny Moore, who is based on Darren Cox, who I'm guessing didn't have much sway over the project because he is the only character who's just a bit of a dick. Yeah. Can you imagine if you did and you're like, just make me the villain? Yeah. <laughs> I had, I, to be honest, I had I very would. little to do in the real story. Make me the villain. Yeah. I want to, at least then I've got a legacy. <laughs> I stun this kid's way at every turn. Yeah. I want people to hate me. I want twelve year olds who fall in love with this film to hate me. <laughs> but I also want it to be confusing because I'm I want you to play play me with Orlando Blue. Yeah, make me hot though. <laughs> make, make me really hot. I wanna be a hot villain. So all the girl all the twelve year old girls who fall in love with this film fall in love with me. And yeah. that's gonna make it really difficult for the boys that they came with. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you like him? He was really mean. I know, that's kinda of why, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh dear we're setting them up for failure yeah we are anyway without him the film wouldn't have anything in the way of conflict at all especially okay. after the first act when harbour largely just drops the antagonism and becomes just a supportive you know surrogate <laughs> father figure philosophically sure. the movie stumbles at first because bloom's big selling point for the project is that not enough people are driving cars that young people don't <laughs> want to buy cars and we need to get them to buy and drive their own cars really, really fast <laughs> fuel guzzling cars <laughs> yeah that's not really what we need to do at all actually Orlando no, Bloom. No, no, that's kind no. of the opposite of what we need no. to do so they change track uh-huh. <laughs> um 
And it becomes about class instead. You know, being an um, F1 driver is expensive, and so sure. most working yeah. class kids are left out of it. And so our main character is a humble kid, though humorously his dad wants him to stop wasting his time playing games all day and be like him, a footballer. Okay. <laughs> That's a game of a future. That's a really different Billy Elliot, isn't it? Where it's like, yeah. you're wasting your time, son, with all this ballet. Be a tap dancer like me. <laughs> yeah. That's where the money is. Yeah. Your daddy yeah. and your granddaddy were both <laughs> tap dancers. Yeah, you're, you absolute fool. <laughs> But he's told there's no way for him to break into this world. And so it's an underdog story. It's, you know, the working sure. class kid using a video game, which is a very sort of accessible point of entry into this kind of world. Mm. And his success is going to be one for all the hardworking, talented, poor kids out there who ever dared to dream. But his talent is very overpowered to the point of being, you know, like Malcolm's intelligence in Malcolm in the Middle. Sure. Or, you know, yeah. just... Um, Can't ever fail. Yeah, exactly. We, we're mm. never given much in the way of real setbacks or given any reason to doubt his supernatural ability to intuitively understand the cars and the races thanks to his mm. time in the game. You know, it's a film with very little conflict, which limits how interesting it could ever be. So I think it's it's two stars. It gets that second star for being more technically proficient, frankly, just for not being a superhero film at this stage. <laughs> um, yeah, but fair. it's it's not it's not particularly exciting. Yeah, fair enough. Move on. Next. Thanks. All I'd right. rather play the game. At this point, I started rushing through my notes, so I have less That's to say fine. about these. We also have less time to record in. <laughs> Haunted Mansion! Haunted Mansion, do it! <laughs> Disney's most recent attempt to turn another one of its theme park attractions into a film, desperately trying to capture the lightning in the bottle that was the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. The only time this worked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's been 22 years, damn it. Yeah. And it only worked once for them as well, so, That's you know. true! Well, I think the first trilogy did gross very I... well. They did gross well, but I rewatched yeah. the second one several years later and went. Oh no, they're no. terrible. No, they're terrible. The te- first one. No, nah, the first one's fun. It's terrible, but in like a, a fun. The, yeah. Well, me neither. You know what I'm saying? That, but I remember the first one being like fun enough that you could watch it several times. But the second one didn't stand a second rewatch. For yeah, me. but financially, I think the original trilogy did well. Oh, yeah. But that was oh, over yeah. in 2007. You know, before this superhero mm. nonsense started. So <laughs> nonsense, nonsense. Damn it. Um. Previous attempts include Jungle Cruise, Tomorrowland, and mm. a previous Haunted Mansion with Eddie Murphy. Oh yeah, the so, Eddie Murphy one. I've seen that one a couple of times, actually. Well, there you go. This is this is a remake of that, essentially. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. In fact, that's helpful, because I haven't seen it, so you can tell me if the premise is in any way similar. Oh, gosh. That. I think it's exactly what you think it is. Sure well, will this be the first to succeed financially? No, it's already flat massive, flopped massively because they didn't advertise it at all. No. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. The story follows Ben, played by the always excellent and almost always underutilized Lakeith Stanfeld, who was a scientist who suffered discreditation for his work on proving that ghosts exist and then grievance for his ghost-believing wife, Alyssa. So there's a lot of complicated stuff involving ghosts going on there. Uh, He is recruited by Owen Wilson uh, to help out a young mother, Rosario Dawson, and her son, (laughs) Chase W. Dillon who have just moved into a haunted house together. Uh, Unfortunately, what he doesn't disclose to Lakeith Stanfeld is that once you step foot into the haunted mansion, the ghosts will chase you back if you try to leave. So, together, unable to leave, and with a few other accidental guests, including Tiffany Haddish's frustrated psychic and Danny DeVito's grumpy old historian, they try to lay the ghosts to rest and escape... The Haunted House. Oh, Mansion. Damn, I almost got it right. Pirates of the Caribbean. (laughs) So, the big question is, does this really work as Baby's first horror film? 
uh, because mine was Casper, mm. I think, uh, in 1995. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think very much like the Brad Silberling film, Haunted Mansion introduces the spooky aesthetic and the mm. grammar of a horror kind of sequence. Sure. And it has some moments that may well spook kids with its atmosphere. And, you know, the creature design is quite effective, I think. Some of the ghosts mm. are quite spooky. Um, but the film is very quick to undercut its scary moments with often stilted or over-the-top comedy. I always hate it when the score is doing so much heavy lifting with its comedy and to mm. let kids know that this is wacky. And uh, it, it's it's nothing compared to the family films of the 1970s and 80s that were actively hostile to children. <laughs> <laughs> and whilst there is stuff out there like that now... You're not going to get it from Disney, nah. you know, so this might be a good primer for kids, but I'd be surprised if it scared any but the youngest audiences. Characters are more fun than the script allows them to be. Tiffany Haddish is the standout. She's very naturally funny in her mm. constant frustration that she's finally in a context where her supernatural, where there is actual supernatural stuff going on and everybody believes in the supernatural for once, but she's being <laughs> frequently ignored by the spirits. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Uh, Stanfeld is fantastic in the lead. He alternately needs to be the sort of straight man to all of the eccentricity going on around him or the comedic foil in himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes just actually genuinely be affected by grief. So he manages all of these things quite well. Um, and two last opposing elements that kind of push me and pull me with this is one of them is the charming haunted New Orleans aesthetic and mm-hmm. the sort of French Quarter kind of feel to everything. Oh, fun. And the other is the sheer gratuity of the product placement, which is more, <laughs> more offensive than most in this. So, yeah. Three stars, it's fine. Okay. There's enough yeah, going enough. on to keep you interested, but it's not... I don't know. It doesn't hold up to the great yeah. family-friendly horror movies that there are. Okay, cool. The uh, I remember the 2003 film being a lot more uh, of a basic premise. I think Eddie, they just find... They're just like, oh, Eddie Murphy and your family are going to go to this house... Yeah, yeah, they want to sell it or something. And I looked, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and then there's <laughs> ghosts. And I think, you know, there's probably some well, secret about the ghosts, but whatever, whatever, there's ghosts. Well, I guess points for a little more ambition then. I will say that yeah, a lot exactly. of the exposition stuff gets delivered in just montages, including bonding moments. Like, like Keith Stanfield mm. and the kid have to bond and they do like a setting up the house montage, you know, of just them yeah. doing work. And then there'll be scenes thrown in there of them like bonding. And it's like, oh, hang on. Maybe you should make that a scene. Yeah, make that an actual scene. Make that a scene, No, please. more time for ghosts. <sighs> yeah. Uh, 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 strays. Uh, strays. Huh? Strays. This is a movie about strays. a dog. Uh, oh, by, it, I love it. Five stars. <laughs> live action movie about dogs. It's it's a dog who's abandoned by his owner, who's a really abusive kind of horrible guy, Aww. and he meets up with a bunch of street dogs. It's it's Aww. it is, but it's it's uh, in a very humorous way. Like Will Ferrell, <laughs> Will Ferrell as the dog believes that the human is like the best owner ever, Aww. and that he plays a fun game where he drives me out to a part of town and leaves me there, and I have to find my way home and. You know, no. he thinks it's a game and it's actually this guy just trying to get rid of this dog. And the humor sort of derives. It's, it's a one joke kind of thing, really, which sure. is that the dogs are very naive and they keep mistaking adult content because this is a sort of R-rated. I don't know oh, if it okay. is R-rated, but it's a sort of adult comedy, mm. you know, adult in the adolescent sense yeah. <laughs> um, comedy uh, where the co- dogs co- constantly misunderstand what's going on. You know, and I think it's meant to be one of these high concept kind of how did a major studio invest in this style movies similar to No Hard Feelings last month? Mm -hmm. You know, how did a movie with this much budget and with such a famous cast get made when it's about dogs, you know, Uh kinky business? It's you're all better show up and see this. So 
Some big names. <laughs> they really are. And the cast mm. is very good, especially Jamie Foxx and Isla Fisher. I think they do really, really well. Will yeah. Ferrell is doing Buddy the Elf again, and it's fine. He's good at it, you know. Yeah. It, he does what he needs to. Um, but yeah, one merit, one great merit of the film is having actual dogs for the most part. Oh, nice. That's much. That's great. It is. It's yeah. much better. And they do CGI mouth stuff, which, you know, they. I remember they did in Cats and Dogs back in um, yeah. 2000, whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, it, we've gone on a long way from then to the point where oh, it's okay. not intrusive. <laughs> and it's very good that they're actually corralling actual dogs. Yeah. It's not necessary to do the mouth stuff. Come on. Nah. You, I'm happy with Homeward Bound style. You know, we hear their voices and we just know that they're talking. That's fine. Yeah. You know, but fine. It's not distracting. What is distracting is sometimes when they do have CGI dogs and it's like, like, there's a scene where an eagle just picks up a dog and flies off with it. And it's like, yeah, you couldn't really do that very well with a real dog. (laughs) No, no, not safely. No, No, probably fair enough. You use the CGI one for that. But you do seeing that thing. Oh, yeah, I get now why you did so much of this with actual dog actors. And it's a good Mm. thing they did, because without that, you'd lose the sort of, I think, grounded nature of the comedy being that these are real street dogs interacting yeah. with the real world uh the comedy is not really for me it's very steeped in gross out humor with lots of vomit scat and crude sex jokes a lot of the time Aww. it's just meant Aww. to be funny <laughs> hearing isla fisher and her australian accent yell swear words and such but, Yay. <laughs> but some, i mean sometimes it did make me laugh it got a few laughs out of me but it's just generally speaking not really my thing sure um but it does beyond that have a very sweet and sort of seemingly good-natured heart to it you know, there's such a template for this, you know, make a gross out movie, but have it have a good heart, you know. And yeah. It, it's one of the movies that sort of succeeds more at doing so than others. So I would say it's three stars. Okay. All right. Down the line. Maybe I'm being a bit generous to non-superhero movies, but. <laughs> yeah, you're just so bitter at the moment. I'm so bitter, Jen. <laughs> I know. But I tell you what, there's something else that's stuck in my craw this month, and it's, it's yeah. best exemplified by Joyride. Okay. Joyride is... An American comedy movie. <laughs> sure, this is a promising start. Is it? <laughs> no, knowing how you feel about American comedy movies. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have a bit of a prejudice building up here, but the premise mm. is that Ashley Park plays mm-hmm. Audrey Sullivan, a Chinese-American who was adopted out of China when she was a baby, so she has a very tenuous connection with China. Um, unlike the f- sort of friends around her, you know, her best friend sort of is also kind of Chinese American, but mm-hmm. visits way more often. She is the only one of the fil- of the friend group that she assembles around her who does not actually speak Mandarin. But okay. nevertheless, she has to go home to China in order to secure a big business deal for her boss. Um, and being the only you know Chinese American person in the company means that she automatically is sort of sent on the assumption that she'll understand the culture, but mm-hmm. she does not. She yeah. is a stranger there. And it just sort of, and various scenes come together as the four friends kind of interact with Chinese culture. Uh, And so it's a film about being a sort of outsider in two cultures, not quite fitting into either for one reason or another. So the humor of this, once they begin their journey, it's very, it's, God, it's really hard to describe a difference between comedy movies where the comedy is a part of the movie and the comedy feels like a, a layer on top of the movie. Sure. Like they wrote a really straight narrative and then just wrote jokes to happen yeah, whilst that's I happening. Mean. It, it's it's strange, but it's just sometimes the humor has no weight. Like characters will suddenly act incredibly inappropriately and embarrass everyone, but it's fine. Nobody's really going to pay attention because that's just a bit of the comedy. Yeah. Or characters will just suddenly act really out of character, but it's fine because it's a joke. It's funny. You know, and I therefore was not surprised to find out 
that one of the writers, one of the key writers on this is a Family Guy writer. You know, she's uh, been involved with Family Guy for ages. So sure. the cutaways are here that are generally characterized by being vulgar and very insubstantial, not really mm-hmm. coming from any sort of real place. And by not engaging with things that it's covering, like there's a lot of stuff in there about sort of female sexual desire and such. And there's a scene where our main character has a threesome. But okay. you do feel like you're being invited to laugh at it. And as a result... The film almost feels quite conservative, really, in its own way of portraying these things, but also in doing so in a way that feels insincere. And there's no stage in which the characters, who are seemingly very close-knit, actually talk earnestly about the things they've experienced. It's just a gag, you know, and you don't know whether Mm. or not it's really happened or not. It's just, I don't know. And the other thing was, about this being an authentically an authentic depiction of Chinese family life or societal Mm. life. Now, obviously I'm in no way qualified to talk about this. It was written by second generation Chinese and Thai writers who moved to America in their childhood or were born in America. I think there's one of each. Mm -hmm. And just watching this movie where they go and they experience corporate douchebags in their twenties who drink a lot and party too hard, but have like this weird kind of superficial connection to their heritage that they say is very important and then they go to the family where there's a mum who likes Mm. feeding everyone and Mm -hmm. criticizes everyone and is a bit too earnest but Mm. the family's really big and there's lots of kids and you just think (laughs) this could be anywhere yeah this could be a greek family this could be an italian family this could be anything yeah and it just comes from what feels like a really superficial connection to these cultures and there is just a general kind of non-american depiction i also got this from blue beetle this was the point i wanted to Mm. return to is this just this is what a foreign family is like they eat together they eat together food with recognizable things in it and they're really (laughs) honest with each other sometimes to the point of being abrupt wowie uh, those foreigners those crazy foreigners and what they do and what they don't understand about our social wars they love to eat don't they 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 really love to eat their mums love to make them eat my mum loves to make me eat doesn't everyone's mum love to make them eat (laughs) the food can be gross but is actually quite good you'll probably have to eat a testicle of some sorts but it's actually really good it's very good if you get it cooked over here by a white person (laughs) (laughs) who's gone and studied and learned the good bits and then put fries with it I mean it just (laughs) <laughs> and although it does also make fun of sort of American liberal sensibilities, it does still feel like it is serving the s- superiority of the sort of American culture, mm. you know, of just we're the ones who sort of understand tolerance and, you know, empathy yeah. and the importance of feelings and, you know, tact and all the rest of it. And the others, you know, are living potentially more authentic lives and there's a lot to learn. But the key thing is that we learn there and bring back to where it counts. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I'm being too cruel, but compare this maybe. to Return to Seoul no, no. or mm. Seoul, and you know I think the difference is that Return to Seoul's Freddy is alone. She mm. goes alone and spends her time alone. Audrey spends the entire trip talking with her friends. Mm. Now that's fair enough if you want this movie to be about sort of getting to the heart of the uh, you know uh, Chinese American friend group, mm. then great, do that. But by putting them in another country, you just constantly remind the audience about how. segregated their experiences from the people around them you know if Mm. they communicate with chinese strangers they do so in montages where we don't hear their side of the conversation and it's just it feels very much like setting and it's very insincere and 
yeah, feels very affected and there's no mm. deep observation of cultural difference. Um, for that, I recommend watching Return to Seoul or The Farewell, which did this I was just much better. Say, much yeah, better. That was, so, that's what immediately came to mind. Yeah. It's a shame because I wanted to be on board with Joyride. I really, you mm. know, was in the mood for like a group of female characters on an adventure together, you know, with some sort of genuine interactions yeah. with a different culture. But I just did not get that here. And it just felt like Family Guy. Ah, shame. It is a shame. Oh, well. Two stars. Two stars. There has been a good comedy this month, though. Oh. Theatre Camp. Theatre Camp? I've not heard of this at all. Oh, I think you need to see this. Uh, this is Molly <laughs> yeah, Gordon. fun. Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman direct a script that they've written with Ben Platt and Noah Galvin. And it is basically just a theatre camp. The um, sort of saintly uh, owner and runner of the uh, theatre camp, Joan, Blessed Joan, mm-hmm. has fallen ill, causing her dirtbag sort of influencer, new money son, to come in and try and make it stay afloat. But it's okay. more about how the people running the camp are trying to prepare for the big end of season sort of theatre performance by corralling the young kids, the sort of, you know, school age kids into delivering excellent theatre performances. And they're doing a few. What, what are they doing again? I, uh, they're doing their own performance, which is The Life of Joan, but they're also doing a few recognised uh, musicals as well. Um and sure. yeah, it's just it's just about that. It's about their experience and it's about the, the characters who run this camp. And unlike Joyride, this feels like you are invited to join in on a joke. And, okay. to, and it's speaking from a place of absolute truth. Like these people know this world, it feels like. This feels authentic. Maybe it's just yeah. tying into cli- to cliches that, I, that resonate with me, but it feels real. And to recognize both the absurdity of the theater camp, but also to celebrate what it means to these characters. You know, it's something very sincere about something that is quite silly, but means a lot to people. Mm. And it feels knowing and it doesn't feel mean, you know, and it's an ensemble cast that does for the, to be fair, mostly focus on Gordon and Platt's characters Mm. who are great and they work brilliantly together. But sometimes that does come at the cost of other characters. In particular, there are so many non-white queer characters who are hilarious and scene stealing. Mm. but get kind of sidelined by the narrative yeah. and they're kind of shame. supporting characters, which is a shame for a movie that wants to be about acceptance and diversity. But, shame. you know, it gives moments to everyone. Everyone gets to yeah. say something that absolutely slays the room. And I was not in a big audience for this, but it absolutely played. Oh, you know, fun. everybody was in stitches throughout this thing. Um, and the kids get on really well together. So you get a sense of this robust community, which is really fun. And also... You know, as a horror movie fan, it's just nice to see a movie about, you know, a group of campers that doesn't end with them all being brutally murdered. So I give it one, Paul. Not even one of them gets brutally murdered. And for that reason, four stars. I really, oh, lovely. I, yeah, I really this sounds fun. It. I think I'd enjoy it. I think it would relate as someone who did a lot of um, theatre yeah. as a teenager. I think it would relate. <laughs> Never went to a full camp. but uh... <laughs> I mean, just seeing the lessons yeah. play out is great. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. yeah. If we get time, I'd love to get your opinion on the trailer, but I don't think we do. Okay. Kokomo City. Oh, God, this is a real change of pace. <laughs> uh, Kokomo City is D. Mm-hmm. Smith's confronting and powerful documentary about four trans sex workers working okay. in New York and Georgia as they explain their lifestyle, what got them into this kind of work, um, and some of the stories that have sort of defined their lives. Um, and the movie focuses on these women as they 
fearlessly relay their stories, and the movie successfully empowers these women whilst also demonstrating the dangers they face and why, i.e. that their clients have very complicated feelings because of toxic masculinity towards Mm. the things that they really want. Um, But I don't want to paint a bad idea with this movie. It is cool and sexy and funny and really just compellingly entertaining to watch as well as being you know, fearlessly confrontational. And it's best exemplified by the very opening of the movie in which uh, one of the women tells a story about a client who, during the sort of sex work that was going on, she noticed he had a gun on the bed next to him. He had gotten it out of his sort of pocket and just put it there because he couldn't have it in his pocket. Mm. She panicked and grabbed it and, like, turned it on him. And now they're having a standoff and they're fighting over a gun. (laughs) And it escalates and it gets crazy. And then, like, a week later, he texts her and is just like, sorry about that, and they agree to hook up again. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's stuff like that. It's, it's, you know, there's the potential for it to be a little bit uh, anthropological, you know, kind of just... sure you know, spectating on all of this. But the project came out of Dee Smith's experience of being forced out of the music industry where she had a very successful career, then she Mm. transitioned. And so she got forced out and found herself homeless. And Mm. her experiences, you know, with trans sex workers who um, she kind of met when she was trying to sustain herself. And, you know, she did consider sex work as an option at various points before sort of Mm. going into, you know, making a documentary. And so it comes from a real place of truth and there's a huge amount of affection for the people involved. And also a couple of really interestingly insightful interviews with some other people. Like there's a group of guys in a car who just seem like three guys, regular guys yeah. in their car, and they're just talking about how you've got to love the person you love and you've got to be brave and a bit fierce with mm. it. And if you go hard, you yeah. know, loving the people yeah. you love, then people won't step up to you. And it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay, cool. You guys are great. <laughs> yeah, they do sound pretty cool. And, and then I assume that she's also interviewing a former acquaintance of hers in the music industry because it's this guy who, I don't, I can't remember who he is, but he's a big deal in the music industry and he's talking about his really troublesome, uh, well, for him, attraction to a trans woman and how difficult he's found rectifying that. And, you know, he spends mm. the whole movie like psyching himself up to actually contact her and it's, you know, there's a yeah. lot of angles here and it's very interesting. And there's tragedy and violence and drug addiction and it's a frightening portrayal, but it does not talk down to them or show them as anything other than powerful people, you know, cool. living a difficult life. And it's a very tricky balancing act, but I think it manages it. It's um, uninhibited, empathetic, gorgeously shot, and it has an amazing soundtrack. So yeah, Kokomo City, highly recommend it. Five stars. Wonderful. It's the best one I saw. Best one this month. Best film of the month, Kokomo City. Yeah, I'd watch that. That sounds amazing. Well, that brings us to Paris Memories. Paris Memories? Wait, when did we go to Paris? (gasps) When did we go to Paris, Paul? Unfortunately, that has not become one of our Paris Memories. Oh. That's the thing about Paris. It's only some of the memories take root like a garden. Hmm. Um, Yeah, just two movies left. There were Frenchies. (laughs) Oh, yay. Oh, yay. A bit of French. Oh, la, 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 la. Ooh, la, la is actually an expression of um, when something bad has happened. Everyone always thinks it's sexy, but it's not. Oh, no. It's not. Ooh, la, la. It's like, oh, la, it's la, hard. la, 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 That feels like a scolding sort of thing. Right? I feel like an older French dad kind of type. Yeah, oh, la, la. Yeah, exactly. Papa, I dinged the car. Oh, la, la, la. I think that's exactly how you use it. No, 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 no. Oh, God. <laughs> Feast of poot to pauvre con. God, I hate it when he says that. Mm. I still have no idea what it means. No. <laughs> I wish I was French like my father. 
Oh, God, yes. Paris Memories. I knew nothing about this one going in, except mm. that it was directed by Atlas Winnicore, mm-hmm. which is enough for me. And I didn't see any advertising for it. It's just the standard thing. French films in this country show, but they don't get any marketing. So you just kind of <laughs> show up and see what happens, which yeah. I kind of like, to be honest. Yeah. Because sometimes French cinema can feel like a genre, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly <laughs> it can what be you mean. Like the, the Mia Hansen love stuff, or, you know, Eric Roma, all the way back. It just, you know, it's going to be people who are in love, uh, mm. but they can't make that love work. Mm. They hate each other now, and mm. a new life beckons. Mm. And it starts off like that, and I'm like, okay, I get, I, I'm laying out the characters here. It's pleasant, you know, there's a bit of drama. You've got a woman who's with a uh, EMT, and it's like, okay he's really busy he's running off in order to do things she doesn't like it okay mm-hmm. i'm getting the grounds of the drama here how many and, croissants uh, the do they is, eat they eat very very few croissants although <sighs> they do visit two restaurants in the first sequence so Ooh, nice okay good i'm on i'm back on board it's virginie Ifira, Ifira, rather okay i don't think you need to roll the r here <laughs> or edith pf uh from <laughs> bernadetta okay uh, amidst other things who is doing who is playing the lead role um, and she goes to a restaurant after being blown off by her husband. And uh, she's having... The only thing that's really hinting at the fact that something's about to change is the fact that she's sort of... Keeps having these interactions with people where she just sees them and is like really smiley about it. And she doesn't interact with them, but she's incredibly whimsical and everybody's you know living these lives that are very complex. And she's just sort of observing them. And you, you get the sense, huh, if I was doing a disaster movie, I'd probably set it up like this, of everything being idyllic and beautiful and wonderful. Uh, but then she goes to leave the restaurant, and the first two people in front of her get shot down. Oh, and okay. She has to take courage, and yeah, it turns out that this is a mass shooting movie. Wow. Because she's in a involved in a mass shooting at a restaurant, uh, which is a very fraught sequence that really okay. brings home a lot of the sort of anxieties people may have about mm. how that would play out, about not quite reacting quick enough, about mm. being in the wrong place, about not being able to find cover from the guy. Um, you know, it's a really sort of harrowing sequence that, you know, goes on for barely a minute, really. Then we cut and we're in the hospital. And the rest of the movie is about her, first of all, trying to process it, mm-hmm. survivor's guilt, trying to get over it um, and deal with what actually happened. The surreal nature of trying to move on, going back to the restaurant and finding that they've reopened and restaffed and yeah. are just carrying on. Um, and the systems that you have to interact with, like the support groups um and other people's grief that sort of thing then it becomes about memory because she can't fully remember what happened during but she has a sense that she connected with someone but she Mm. can't remember enough about the person to really do anything about it so she's trying to revisit she's trying to remember and she's trying to then reach out and then that then becomes a story about class about personal connections chance encounters you know, the mm. thin lines that divide us all, which can be brought down very suddenly. All of this. So, and it's really interesting the way Winnicott gives time and attention to other stories um, that you hear in these really interesting ways that sort of break the style that she's set up, but all still feel very con- congruous. Mm. You know, you'll have characters suddenly deliver pieces to camera about what they're going through. And it, yeah, it's very interesting. And I think the effect of it all is that this really truly is a movie about the survivors and not the murderer. 
or the event. Okay. Because nice. you hear that mm. sometimes. You hear that about like Nitram yeah. or you hear about Dharma, you know, the show that came out a while ago about Dharma. And it's always like, we're making this to honor the victims. And it's like, are you or are you just <laughs> exploiting it in order to mm. get attention? You know, and then you cast someone hot as the killer and everybody's like, ooh, don't know how to feel about this. In here, you'd never see the killer's face. And it is absolutely entirely and firmly about mm. the people who experience this and how to move on. And yeah, I think that's fairly brilliant for being about that. So I'm going to give it, ooh, I've said four stars. I'm wondering, what did I give five stars to this episode? Kokomo City. Mm. It'll be four for now. Okay. But that's it's tricky. still excellent. It's, 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 it's very good. It's extremely good, but you've got to keep it back for... Something that blows your blows your bloody butt off. Wonderful. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. It's very good and interesting yeah. is the thing. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Cool. Ouais. 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 Très intéressant. Évidemment. Évidemment. Only with your vision. Évidemment. The innocent, though. The innocent. Oh, le innocent. Le innocent. Wait. <laughs> Wait. Uh, yes, this is... Okay, so this is the other one. Again, a movie I did not go in with any expectation. Didn't okay. know what it was about or what the tone was or anything like that, but expect wow. it's a French film. Yeah. And, yeah, we start off with a very dramatic moment in a prison where a woman has gone to... Oh, deliberately dramatic, because she goes mm. and she's basically someone who does theatre therapy for prisoners. Okay. So she goes in and she gets them all to do plays. And mm. it's a very tense moment that you think is like the start of the movie, but then it turns out to be a play between two prisoners. And it's all very cute. And the teacher cute. gets on well with everyone. Then she starts a relationship with one of them. Oh. And we're in a car with her and her son driving up to go on, I think, some sort of date or to meet with the prisoner. Uh-huh. And they're behind the prisoner transport vehicle and she starts honking the horn, swaying all over the road, holding up a little sign she's made, playing loud love music and like jumping out the window whilst the sun's like, Mom, what are you doing? No. And that's when you kind of realize you're in a broad French comedy. Ah, <laughs> they'll sneak up on you. They'll It'll sneak, sneak up, up on, on you. you sometimes. Every so often a French film is actually an overt comedy and uh, yeah. It takes you by surprise. When I say broad, I don't mean like gross out humor, like okay. um, Joyride or anything, but it's very silly. Okay. Um, but still, you know, it takes itself seriously when it needs to as well. Um, so, yes, we have got, uh, ooh, Rosha D. Zem, I mm-hmm. believe, who's playing our lead. Um, and he's, yeah, he spends the whole movie as this kind of um, whipped, unsure kind of son mm. who is just like looking around, looking tense. Not mm-hmm. sure, not sure yeah. what to do because he suspects that his father is um, still a criminal. Okay, and that he is pursuing. And the film's fairly unambiguous about that. It's not like you know a Western American <laughs> sure. comedy where it's like I saw him buy a gun. It's like it's not a gun. It's a gun-shaped chocolate I bought for your mother. And everyone's like, oh, yes, I remembered when you remarked on it. And then I smash someone's like, no. brains in with it. <laughs> <laughs> by which I mean. Got these files as well. You yeah. know, it's, there's no ambiguity. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, he's he's up to criminal stuff. It's just the son can never prove it. Mm. Um, and uh, he's in there with his best friend, uh, who hope might be something more, Naomi Malant, who okay. people will remember from Portrait of a Girl of a Lady on Fire. Um, Portrait of a Girl and... who's a bit wet. Portrait, <laughs> Portrait of a damp girl. <laughs> Portrait of a damp girl. And... <laughs> um, and she was also in Tar. She played the assistant, so she's yeah. Yeah, she's very good. Uh, but here she's playing this sort of very madcap friend. 
so yes, the two of them are working together, and then you've got the mum, Anouk Grimberg, who is absolutely fantastic as this sort of, yeah, larger-than-life kind of mum caricature sort of character who nevertheless mm. feels very seriously and gets very severe if you try and question her on, you know, the things that's best for her. Yeah. Because ultimately the son has valid complaints but is going about it in a really incorrect way. Sure. Um, which is what sort of, you know, the de- comedy derives from is that you, there's a, it's like a kind of problem of misunderstanding, but it's more sort of problem of putting yourself forward in a way that is actually helpful <laughs> um, to anyone understanding mm. your concerns. So it's very sweet. It's quite silly. I never know whether particular moments are supposed to be funny or whether something <laughs> is being lost in translation. Uh. When his best friend and possible lover is trying to convince him to stop being so stuck up and help out his dad with a criminal enterprise. I'm not sure if I'm, because of how quickly they're talking, I get the impression that, yes, the movie knows this is a bad thing to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, they're just going. We're just going along with it. It's a, but it's a very compelling twist on a very familiar concept of you know. Oh. I suspect my relative is doing criminal stuff. You know, we've yeah. You know, it's Hitchcock, literally. You know, yeah. has a movie about that. So it's a very old premise, but it's a fun twist because quite quickly he just gets involved, and okay. I start to wonder because there's a moment where he, the crim- we, we get a scene of just the dad with his criminal guy, mm. and he's like, "Is your son still following you?" And he's like, "Yeah, there he is." And he points over, and there's a, he's hiding behind a pillar, really obviously, <laughs> just at the back of the room. And he's like, "You know, there is a way of dealing with him, but I don't think you're gonna like it." And obviously, you're meant to think it's like violence. Mm. In the next scene, he ropes him into the enterprise. I thought that what where that was going was what he suggested was pretending to bring him into a criminal enterprise. Uh, okay, give him what he wants and says, "We're smuggling diamonds, and I need you to help." And then it turns out you've actually because yeah. the way that he wants him to help is to have a full-on lover's tiff with the best friend character. Uh, so I thought maybe this was his way of nudging them together. Okay. Um, which does kind of happen. But then it t- no, it t- it's earnest. You know, he oh, is actually okay. helping him to steal. Oh, okay. <laughs> what is it now? Caviar. Which, again, is a very comedy movie thing that you get, you yeah, steal. Yeah, it's a, uh, a funny item <laughs> to be nicking. It's a funny nickable item. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes it feels a bit Coen Brothers-esque in a way that's quite nice, but it has its very own particular and singular charm. But yeah, every now and then I just wasn't quite sure where I was with it. So I'm going to sure. give it three stars. Okay, fine. Yeah. Remind me it's what that star. one was called again? The Innocent. The Innocent, that was it. <laughs> but who is the Innocent? It's, the, it's meant to be the sun. It's not the, not the yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. We'll, I got we'll that. that. I got that. So I guess to wrap up, this has been a chaotic mother, summer movie season. Mother mm. humpin' movie season. <laughs> Looking back at the blockbusters, obviously, Barbenheimer is the big victor. Of course. And it's wonderful to see that. It's wonderful yeah. to see something so different come out oh, as gosh, the, big, yeah. the big boy of the summer. Mm. Uh, or the big gal. Mm. Just a summer big gal. And I yeah. love that. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning is the heartbreaker. It's the mm. one that you kind of wanted to do better. If you wish they'd released more sensibly. Yeah. <laughs> but... <sighs> Little Mermaid, Fast X, Transformers, Elemental, The Flash, Indiana Jones, Haunted Mansion, all lost money. And mm. all correspond to pro- kinds of movie that would have normally done well. A Michael mm. Bay movie, remakes, you know, just Disney bland releases. So, yeah, it's kind of nice. Mm. Kind of, I know you hope, though, that Disney do not buy the go woke, go broke narrative that, that terrible people are trying to push around sure. this. Because a lot of those movies featured non-white leads. Yeah. Um, that's not the lesson. The lesson is make better movies. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 And fresh ideas. Well. I hope. You'd like to think they'd learn from Barbie, which is, you know, absolutely smashing mm. it. 
<laughs> yep. Fairly woke. I'd oh, they say. have learned, Jen. They yeah. have learned because now we're going to get the He Man action figure. Of course movie. we are. And we're getting the Uno one as well, aren't we? Aren't we're we getting... getting an Uno game. It's got to be just people playing. You're not going to bring the reverse card back up to life, are you? We're not I doing the emoji know. movie I again. I played Uno the other day for the first time in a while and was reminded just that, especially with just two players. That game is just pure chance. <laughs> there is <laughs> yeah, almost is. no skill to it. <laughs> no, uh, no, good absolutely game for not. Kids. It's fun. Quite a boring it's... game for adults. <laughs> yeah. Well, two players, I think it's quite dull. When you've it's got five people, you don't two, know what yeah. any of them have. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, little a bit more exciting, chaos, it is and then you can revel in that. But yeah, two, one the on only one, bit of strategy not... I learned yeah. with that is always match co- uh, the number okay. and not the color if you can, because there's far less chance of the number coming True. up again than the, the color. Even if it, even if you've got all blue cards and yeah. one yellow one, and the yellow one matches, play that to get because rid the of chances it. of being able to play that later will yeah. be very remote. Well, hot tips for Uno. Hot Uno tips. Hot Uno mm. tips. That's what you come for, folks. This is now Paul's game tips. Yeah. With a Z. Game tips. And mm. yeah, I think you're going to like it. But yeah. favorite movie of the summer? It's Across the Spider-Verse. And uh, I, it kind of tears me yeah. up that it's a superhero movie at this stage because we're, you know, talking about wanting to move on from that. But it is Across the it's Spider-Verse. Wonderful. It's wonderful. But it's wonderful, though. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, but Oh, and Oppenheimer as well because I just... Yeah. I also really, really love Barbie, though. I, those yeah, top Barbie three, so those three for me are all just <laughs> wonderful. And I think if you had... Uh, if we'd gotten to seeing Asteroid City, that would also plump oh, up yeah. your top five, okay. because that's probably my third position there. Um, if we're calling that a summer blockbuster, which I think we can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's exciting. There's aliens in it. <laughs> yeah. It's a blockbuster. It's like um, Independence Day. Yeah, just like um, it. <laughs> Although if we are including that, then we might have to include Past Lives, which uh, does, after all, have A24 back- backing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, that clearly fits into the run-up to Christmas indie movie run that we're okay. about to have. So, all right, fine. Then. Fine. 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 Uh, my least favorite movie of the summer was probably Blue Beetle or Indiana Jones, but only because wow. uh, Shazam 2 came out early. <laughs> <laughs> let's, say, let's say it's Blue Beetle because of that fun ending on Indiana Jones. Th- those are the ones I really wanted to leave during. Like, I really actively remember being like, can I just go? Yeah, you can actually. Can I? You can, you you can, can just but never I... go in the first place. <laughs> I've never left a cinema without Katie being the reason I left. So <laughs> I don't yeah, want to break that. I know. It's, it's hard. It's hard it to is. break I that. Don't want, I don't want to give mm-hmm. it the honor of being the first. Because once you start should... leaving, you, realize, you just realize you can go, all, you can just leave all the time. It's like not finishing a book. Yeah, yeah, I'm worried if I do tricky. that. Never finish a book again. But I'm very happy to see that this season was so disruptive for the status quo while still being so good for cinemas. Nice. You know, attendance is up. You know, it's been the best week in British cinemas since uh, Skyfall. Mm-hmm. It's It's been good. And it's, you know, and all with the right movies losing money. So mm. I feel very happy about this summer. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the year because even with Dune 2 and Poor Things pushed back, we've mm-hmm. got Love Life, Love Life. We've got The Creator, we've got The Exorcist remake, which I'm looking forward to. We've got Killers of the Flower Moon, David Finch's The Killer, mm-hmm. Napoleon, Ferrari. Ah. Which, there are, there are stills going around of Ferrari now, which is a new Michael Mann movie for the first okay. time in like a decade. Um, and it's got Adam Driver in it, looking very Italian, and I just have some <laughs> Gucci wow. every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mama. Mama. Uh, but if that all sounds too hopeful, we do also have The Haunting in Venice, Poirot Branner. Um, exp- expend four balls 
Okay. Thanksgiving, <laughs> the new Eli Roth slasher, the Marvels, the new Marvel movie, Aquaman 2, and Wonka. But maybe I'll be uh, wrong yeah. about those. Maybe I'll actually be like, you know what? Those were the highlights. I doubt it. They might be okay, though. Maybe the Wonka film's going to be exactly what we need for Christmas, and Timothy Chalamet shall become the only the second actor to get Wonka right. Mm. Oh, and also, maybe Taika Waititi will redeem himself if next goal wins. Who knows? Who knows? He might do. He might do. Who knows? Uh, and then LFF also... I have press London Film Festival. Those screenings are going to start in like two weeks. Oh my so. god. <laughs> yep. We should be I, able to get you some screenings. Yeah, hopefully. I've started looking through the program, but I need to sit oh, with a piece of paper at the side. Yes, please. So I can write down. And I've decided I'm going to like... The last time I just wrote down everything that sounded interesting on a scale of yes, definitely to would consider. <laughs> now I'm going to do two tiers. I'm going to do... Ah, I'm going to do system. class A... in one ones i would definitely like to see but know that logistically that's not going to happen and then secondary (laughs) ones where it's like you know what i'd give that a shout yeah well have a look at that and then have a look at the website for the was it manchester home yes yeah first of all the cinema i really would like to go to (laughs) to they're showing they're showing some uh some lff stuff there so do you go but i would need you to let me know what you would see if you were here because Mm -hmm. i mean some of it will be online as well Mm -hmm. uh, which is worth keeping an eye on but also yeah yeah, because your picks would almost always get me into the more interesting stuff Uh, in any given year yes booking thank you paul it's on the record i choose the best films (laughs) (laughs) thank you i like that that's official It is official. Booking up is at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Oh, wow. Um, but the films you're going to be sending me to, I don't think are going to sell. Hate. I don't know. Although, I picked all, all my, my friends, friends hate, hate me. me yes, you did. And that was impossible to see. Because I'm the best. And you're I picked the best, the best ones. There's going to be a lot of Middle Eastern stuff about gays. But yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Great. I love that stuff. Yeah. It's good stuff. I still haven't seen Blue Velvet and I want to see that. Blue Velvet? Blue, Blue Caftan? Oh, Blue Caftan. Yeah, there we I go. Mean, you should see Blue Velvet it. as yeah, well. It's great, that. but... Yeah. <laughs> no, Blue Caftan is so good. You'd love Blue Caftan. Well then, from this film critic, it's a gen. And from th- from this gen, it's a film critic. How can people find out more? Well, first they can find out that they've been listening to Jen and the Film Critic. I don't know why I always feel like you have to end it by saying the name of the podcast again, but I think it's good practice. Um, Just in case you blanked out, you passed out and went onto a separate podcast and couldn't be bothered looking at your phone to see... Well, if, you, if you've got sleep paralysis, but your podcast, you slept for a bit and now you, you've woken up for a while, but you've got sleep paralysis. So you can't check your phone to see what podcast you're listening to. And it just rolled onto this one. This is Jen and the Film Critic, a Screen That's Mayhem podcast. <laughs> my name is Jen Blundell. My film critic is Paul Salt. Say goodbye, Paul Salt. Goodbye, Paul Salt. Mm-hmm. Um, our theme music salt. was... <laughs> our theme music was by Jacob Blundell you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Screen Mayhem you can email us at filmcriticpodcast at gmail.com and I think that's about it yeah yeah I think so cool. you could also I guess just tweet at Paul Paul you've got Twitter haven't you I've got Twitter for the most part and sometimes I check it <laughs> more often than I would like yeah. so get in there send me a thing and let me know why say, say your handle Paul that's how it works so your handle. Oh, oh, at Salty Film. Yeah, handle. Yeah, it's a good handle. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good handle. Um, right. Well, uh, super. Say, say, la fan, la fan, la fan, la fan. 
I can't ever remember Masang, what it's called. Lapsang Sushong, everyone. <laughs> Lapsang Sushong to you too. Bye. Bye.